Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And my guest today has been on the show before, uh, back when we were very young in our uh, seventh, seventh episode, and it's Long Island University uh, professor Joe Dorenson. Joe, thank you very much for joining me again. Thanks for uh, having me back again. Now, last time Joe was here, we talked about the Dodgers and his life growing up in Brooklyn, uh, surrounded by the Dodgers. We're going to kind of go off, uh, go, go off the rails a bit and talk about the backdrop of the late 1930s uh, when it comes to the political, social, and cultural atmosphere. Um, you know, I, I think baseball is nothing without uh, its surrounding time, although I, I, I feel very strongly that uh, the time that we're going to be discussing, the late 1930s, certainly has more of an impact uh, as to what's going on around baseball than, let's say, currently now. Um, although it's, it's, baseball is always a welcome distraction no matter what age you're in. Uh, but let's, let's start with a broad uh, brushstroke regarding the late 1930s and the, uh, the, the environment of socially, politically, and uh, culturally, Joe. Quoting Alfred Kazin, no one who grew up in the Depression ever recovered from it. I echo that emotion in my uh, thoughts. For most Americans, the Great Crash arrived like a Western cyclone without warning. Banks failed, factories closed, farmers grumbled, stocks tumbled, politicians fumbled, and a vast array of unemployed workers posed a threat to the social order. Red lines, soup kitchens, apple and pencil merchants dotted our landscape. In certain cities like uh, Ohio's Cleveland and Toledo, unemployment reached almost 80%. Entire families like John Steinbeck's Okies headed for fruit farms in California. After World War I, veterans, among them my father, denied their promised pensions, chanted the Jay Gorney Yip Harburg song, Brother, can you spare a dime? And I'd like to quote from that song because it's so meaningful. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. Why should I be standing in line just waiting for bread? Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Whenever I evoke these words, Sam, tears well up in my eyes because I remember my father singing this through pain and memory. So uh, to put it in perspective, four years into the Depression, uh, that's around 1935, 12.6 million workers still could not find jobs. And uh, even during the first New Deal of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, unemployment peaked at 25% in 1933. So what uh, we're going to discuss, I hope, is how people cope with the Depression and what role did uh, popular culture, which included sports and radio and movies and uh, entertainment uh, on the stage, how, the, how people uh, used it both for coping with the Depression and escaping from it. Let's, uh, let's go from there. Okay, let's start with boxing, for example. 
Yeltsin was a social elevator for marginal groups. First the Irish, then uh, Germans, then Jews and Italians, and of course, more recently, blacks and Hispanics. And it was during this period that there were uh, some very famous fighters. Bonnie Ross represented the Jewish tribe, if you will. Irish contender Jim Braddock, the Cinderella man, pulled off an, a stunning upset at Madison Square Garden when he beat favorite champion Max Baer. In June of 1935, the great brown bomber from Detroit, Joe Lewis, uh, knocked out Prima Carnero and became an instant star. And so if you shift to baseball, even though the Bambino in 1935 was ending a stellar career on the downside, he had one more day of glory when he smacked three home runs in Pittsburgh's cavernous Wolves Field. It was his last hurrah. And now let me turn to my own school, Long Island University, who played its uh, basketball uh, games in Bedford-Stuyvesant. It was the school of pharmacy then. And uh, LRU strung a victory streak of 43 games. And to their credit, uh, the players voted not to participate in Hitler's Olympics. So there were some people who were socially and politically conscious, and they were athletes. There were four schools that boycotted the Olympics. One was LRU, the other was St. John's, uh, Notre Dame, and uh, there was a fourth which uh, now escapes my mind, but I'll come up with it a little later. I think it was Purdue. But in any event, people saw the handwriting on the wall and Hitler's rise to power filled not only Jews, but uh, many others, um, sensitive, far-thinking people with uh, high anxiety. In baseball, uh, Jews had a champion in Hank Greenberg, whose uh, amazing uh, power numbers uh, enabled the Detroit Tigers, deep in the Depression, uh, where the automobile industry uh, boomed and uh, experienced a bust, uh, needed uh, some victories. And th they got victories through uh, Greenberg's leadership and, uh, and several uh, World Series uh, bouts, uh, one with the Chicago Cubs, which they won, and one uh, earlier in 1934 with the St. Louis Cardinals, which they lost. But let's not forget that there was a black experience in baseball in the 1930s, these great players didn't have a chance to do what Jackie Robinson did in the 1940s, namely to prove that they were outstanding athletes. So we never got to see Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Oscar Charleston, Buck Leonard, and a host of other stars that could have competed well with the white players uh, who dominated the game and maybe even excelled. Um, so, uh, you know, whether you're talking sports or culture, in ex for example, there was a play uh, sponsored by the WPA program, uh, a, one of the alphabet agencies of the New Deal, called Waiting for Lefty. It was written by a young playwright named Clifford Odets, his debut. And it occurred on January 6, 1935. 
at the climax of this wonderful play, uh, uh, Lefty has been murdered and doesn't show up. But 14,000 people in attendance greeted Aliyah Kazan, then an actor, not a director, uh, yelled, strike, strike. So for 45 minutes after the play was officially over, there were 28 curtain calls and incessant calls for strike. So people were angry and they were eager for action. That's why many uh, socialist and communist groups gained traction in America. And that affected popular culture because in the uh, 20s, the so-called Roaring Twenties, the heroes of capitalism were the tycoons, the Henry Fords, the, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies from an earlier era, the J.P. Morgans. Now people were turning to uh, their peers among the working class or the lower middle class, people who were unemployed. So uh, when you get a play like Waiting for Lefty and uh, Awake and Sing, a follow-up play by the same author, you do have a sense of empowerment through protest. And this brought in a, a very important cultural phase called the Popular Front. And uh, in this uh, period, you had some outstanding plays and talent uh, sponsored by government, and not the enemy of the Tea Party then, but actually the salvation of America. And you had these plays uh, and uh, songs, uh, plays with music, plays uh, that uh, were minus music. And one of the songs that seems to typify this era was uh, Dancing in the Dark. Deech uh, uh, and... Uh, um, uh, Schwartz, and Dancing in the Dark seemed to express what people were doing. Uh, two lovers struggle to make sense out of a world that is fraught with rapid change and anxiety. And so uh, we were really dancing in the dark and dancing, the dancing of, uh, of, of uh, the great big bands, Benny Goodman and... Uh, on the dark side, uh, pictorially, Duke Ellington, uh, you do have this tremendous surge of energy from young people. And then you have, of course, uh, songs that were written by a man named Earl Robinson. No relation to Jackie. He was a wonderful composer with strong leftist persuasion. And he composed a song named Joe Hill. Uh, a, a radical pin to a martyr of the labor movement. And you had other uh, musicians, Aaron Copeland, Mark Blitstein, Alex North, who created a new kind of music. Harold Rome, in 1937, uh, was responsible for a play with music called Pins and Needles. And it was really a marvelous example of people reacting to depression not by escaping, but by confronting the crisis. One of my favorite moments occurred on November 5th, 1939, over CBS radio. A much maligned Paul Robeson uh, made a comeback when he sang the um, signature song, A Ballad for Americans. And it sang of the everyman, the multifaceted American 
who intoned a warning as well as an upbeat message. And it went like this. Our country's strong, our country's young, and our greatest songs are yet unsung. And after this performance, Paul Robeson and the entire cast received a 15-minute standing ovation. In those days, radio was live. It wasn't taped. And uh, critics like Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times offered high praise. And what's fascinating, even though this was allegedly a communist composer, that song, The Ballad for Americans, was sung at three national conventions in 1940. The Democratic Convention, the Republican Convention, and, of course, the Communist Presidential Convention. So uh, what you have, uh, uh, suddenly, even in the movies, you have um, uh, Busby Berkeley in the, uh, one of his uh, musicals, The Gold Diggers, The Forgotten Man in the finale. Remember my forgotten man, you put a rifle in his hand. You sent him far away. You shouted, hip, hip, hooray. But look at him today. So another important medium was radio. In fact, radio was more important than the other because one billion hours of their time was spent to radio weekly by Americans. Radio, of course, was free once you bought the set. And so there was uh, these um, uh, programs like Amos and Andy, Blackface Minstrels, uh, with a social bite. Uh, for example, an, another um, hot medium was the soap opera. And according to one uh, great scholar, Lauren Barrett, there were three soap operas in 1931. In 1936, there were 31 soap operas. In 1939, there were 61. So in a sense, each of these soap operas had a, a, had a predictable plot line lasting for about four or five weeks. There was trouble at the outset, tranquility in the middle, and climax with a return to trouble. Uh, uh, just one more point. Uh, there was uh, Our Gal Sunday, Omar Perkins, and each of these uh, uh, soap operas had a kind of uh, question. Can this little girl from the mining town of Silver Creek, Colorado, find happiness as the wife of a wealthy, entitled Englishman. So it was escape, and my mother used to listen to this along with my grandmother. And what's interesting in, the, in our experience, they listened to soap opera in English and in Yiddish because there was a Yiddish radio station called WEVD, named after Victor Eugene Debs. Please. So, you know, on the radio scene, there was also a, a boom in comedy, and I know that you're uh, studying a lot of comedy right now. Uh, right. So from the 1930s perspective, where is comedy, and how is it uh, combating and embracing everything going on around them? Oh, actually, comedy, uh, you have uh, Jews making a very important uh, indent in getting their uh, uh, story and song uh, heard. Uh, you had Jack Benny who, by the way, did not identify with his Jewishness until much later in his career. But he had, he had ethnic characters. He had Dennis Day, the Irishman. He had Eddie Rochester Robinson, the Negro. He had uh, Mr. Kitzel and Mr. Schlepperman, Jews. And he played off of them. 
What's significant, and I think Benny deserves credit, even though he avoided uh, overt Jewish identification, is that he allowed Eddie Rochester Robinson, his butler, his valet, to win the arguments, to get the punchline. And that enabled blacks to feel somehow elevated, no longer the laughing stock as they were in the movies. When you think of Manton Moreland and Step and Fetch It, creatures reeking with racism and vile with stereotypes. So uh, I've listened to one of the um, uh, actually a couple of the radio, the Jack Benny radio shows from the late 1930s. Uh, right. Even though I, I, I see what you're saying, there there is still a level uh, of racism there, even though it's just it kind of more says about the time when it comes to that the uh, the Butler character. Right. Uh, uh, Rochester speaks in fractured English, but he often um, and this might be the suggestive underpinning of uh, Benny's Jewishness. He's stingy, and he's frugal. And, of course, in that famous clip uh, when he's held up uh, uh, your money or your life, he doesn't reply immediately, and the uh, robber once again says, your money or life, and he says, I'm thinking it over. (laughs) So you do have a uh, concession to the stereotype. I want to mention the graphic arts because uh, the WPA sponsored a whole program for black as well as white artists, and Philip Evergood comes to mind when he uh, painted the American tragedy depicting class struggle in Chicago. In 1937, Jack Levine painted the Feast of Pure Reason with a corrupt trinity or power elite linking big business with politicians and police. The WPA did a marvelous job in hiring unemployed artists They earned a weekly uh, salary of $23. They produced uh, uh, 108,000 easel paintings, uh, over 2,500 murals, and 17,700 sculptures in a creative eight-year span. And you have so many great artists. You have the regionalists like Thomas Hart Benton, the social realists like Ben Sean and Jack Levine, black artists like Jacob Lawrence and Expressionist, all under the same roof. So this was, in the final analysis, a great explosion of creativity, despite the taint of communism and uh, pinkoism. So let's go to talking about the musicals of the late 1930s, the movie musicals specifically. Uh, it seems as if the... the um environment was ripe, especially basically 10 years outside of sound in movies for movie musicals to blow up. Right. Well, you had uh, Yip Harburg uh, aligning with uh, Harold Arlen in the great musical um, Over the Rainbow, uh, the great song that made Judy Garland a megastar. And uh, while... This could be considered part of the escape genre that I mentioned earlier. It also dealt with a parable. Remember, Judy Garland uh, comes in the character, she comes from Kansas, where uh, there was a great boom and then a bust going back to the 1890s during the populist era. 
And so what uh, the author, Baum, was saying in writing The Wizard of Oz and then uh, converting it later uh, by the uh, movie moguls into this great film, there's an underlying uh, presumption that The Wizard of Oz is a fake, just like the capitalists who claim that they were building the great America for everyone and the trickle-down theory, which was resurrected by George Bush II, um, uh, the, the idea of trickle-down uh, came from the 20s, and the 1930s uh, created a counterwave showing that these men were straw figures, and that, I think, is the meaning of, of um, uh, this wonderful movie, though it's, it's subtle, it's not overt. Right, exactly. It, it it sometimes um, I have to but, be reminded. Yeah, uh, but just coming, just coming across the Wizard of Oz, how great of a movie that actually is. But on the on the whole, most of the Busby Berkeley uh, musicals, uh, you know, the Gold Diggers of 1933 and and their uh, uh, <laughs> children, so to speak, uh, were escapist movies uh, trying to divert Americans from their plight. And uh, suddenly reality uh, came full force because of things that were happening within the country and outside the country. The forces of fascism were on the march. And although the lefties had the best songs and maybe the, the best novels, uh, the fascists were winning uh, most of the wars, particularly the war in Spain, which became a prototype and a precursor of, of, the, of World War II, where the fascists allied with Franco, Germany and Italy, under Mussolini and Hitler uh, respectively, were sending troops and funds and planes. And this, of course, I, I should add, not parenthetically, but directly, led to one of the greatest works of art by Pablo Picasso called Guernica, 1937, when this town was uh, bombed uh, into near oblivion by uh, the German Luftwaffe. And it was designed to test what Schrecklichkeit or horror bombing would do to a civilian population. And Picasso, not yet a full-fledged communist, but leaning in that direction, depicted this horror and made it uh, uh, a, uh, a, a, a awaken the world to the danger of unbridled fascism and its aggressive policies. So what I would say in retrospect, when we look back at the 1930s and uh, early 40s, many of the critics operating the 50s and 60s said, well, this is kitsch, it's lowbrow, it's communist propaganda. But uh, quite frankly, a more balanced view could be found uh, I found something in a musical that went on Broadway. Again, our lyricist was Yip Harburg, and it starred Bert Lahr, and it was called um, Hooray for Watt. It opened on December 1st, 1937. And uh, one of the songs is called God's Country, the second in uh, sequence. And um, Yip wrote these lines, quite memorable. We've got no Mussolini, got no Mosley, but we've got Popeye and Gypsy Rosley. Hi there, Yankee. 
Give out a big thank you. You're in God's country. Let's drink a toast to Uncle Sammy, Jessel's mother, and Jolson's mammy, to Benny's Jello, and a guy named Fiorello. We are in LaGuardia's country. So here is a guy who was accused of communism, who was blacklisted, uh, shut out of Hollywood, came to Broadway in 1947 to write a marvelous musical um, called, uh, he did the lyrics, uh, called Finian's Rainbow, using ethnic Irish and ethnic uh, and race, uh, the African Americans as part of a plot to show that we can get together and fight for social justice. But here, in 1937, he's celebrating not communism, not socialism, he's, he's celebrating America. We're in God's country. And so here is the key. The social activists were not anti-American. They were for Americans, but it was for the forgotten Americans, people okay. from the huddled masses, not only yearning to be free, free to echo Emma Lazarus' great poem, but yearning to have a piece of the pie, one that they worked for and fought for and were denied by the selfish, rugged, individualistic uh, policies of the 1920s under, I might add, a Republican administration, uh, a series of, from Harding to Coolidge to Hoover. The man who profit, uh, promised a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot, echoing, I guess, Huey Long. Yeah, we, we got people in every garage and on uh, garbage dumps. Uh, in Red Hook, uh, Brooklyn, people actually, during the Depression, went there in search for food among the scraps thrown away by restaurants. So clearly America was at the precipice. And I think it's important to remember uh, our tradition of uh, conflict as well as control. And the conflict is certainly emerging in the 1930s. People are awakening to their plight. So They're no longer buying into everyone can be successful if he works hard, saves his money, and plays the Good Samaritan. Uh, action, proaction, is necessary. Both are necessary for uh, society to redeem the American dream. So, Joe, uh, before before I let you go, let's let's yeah. talk about uh, the German American feeling at the time uh, with fascism in their country going on. What, what's what's the overall uh, well, thinking from German Americans? Good question. Uh, uh, there was a, a German-American Bund that was pro-Nazi that was involved in uh, espionage and uh, sabotage it led by Fritz Kuhn. They had a major uh, uh, rally at uh, Madison Square Garden. A Jewish protester came on stage and was brutally beaten, and the police did not intervene to uh, protect him. Uh, my cousin, uh, now deceased, was part of a... Uh, a um, youth group, and he and his friends, they lived in Jersey City and they gathered in New York. They came up to Yorkville, and to their credit, they beat the shit out of some of these uh, German fascists. On the other hand, there were German refugees, uh, many Jewish, not all, Tom, uh, Thomas Mann, the great writer, um, and uh, others who went to Hollywood. 
they were basically intellectuals, artists, writers. There was a great uh, a composer, uh, Kurt Weil, who came with his non-Jewish wife, Lottie Lenya, and they spoke out against fascism. There was Bertolt Brecht, who later repatriated to communist East Germany, who uh, wrote plays and exile and went to Hollywood. So there were Germans with conscience. There were Germans who spoke out against fascism, but uh, many Germans felt this was their revenge against World War One, and they saw Hitler as as a charismatic leader, and were not willing to acknowledge his his uh, horrific deeds, even prior to the official Holocaust. That's fascinating, uh, and Joe, I. Very much appreciate you coming coming on again. It, the conversation is not over, and there's right. still so much to talk about. And, and also, I want I want to thank you for breaking yeah. the ground. Uh, you, you're, you're the first uh, S bomb on the on the Redford and Sullivan podcast, so I congratulate you. Thank you. So I just want to say that this was a rendezvous with destiny to echo Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it's important that we connect our past with our present in order yeah. to ensure a decent future for all. Exactly. Per- perfect sentiments indeed. And thank you very, very much. Uh, yes, thank uh, you for I'll having also, me. I'll welcome you back in the new year and, and have a happy one. Great. Thank you. Bye. Absolutely. Great. That's our show, everybody. Catch you next week. Take care. Hey, Joe.